Where and when does Dr. Nikolai Rostov disappear to when teaching a classroom full of children? Charles F. Hall, today on the Classic Tales podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales podcast is listener supported. If you've enjoyed the Classic Tales over the years, please consider becoming a supporting member. We really need your help right now. Making a monthly donation really helps us to create a support flow we can count on and keep the lights lit. If you can step up with just $5 a month, that really helps us out. Go to classictalesaudiobooks.com and become a monthly supporter. For $5 a month, you'll get a monthly coupon code good for $8 toward any digital audiobook download as a thank you gift. It's a great deal and a great feeling. Thank you very much. And for those of you with the Classic Tales app, check out your special features for more meditations of Marcus Aurelius. Join us in beta testing the Air app and sharing your favorite Classic Tales moments with your friends on social media. Share your air quote with me on my Twitter feed at BJ Harrison Audio, and I might give you a shout out and feature your air quote on the podcast. You can find a link to the Air app in the show notes for this episode. The folks at Spotify have also reached out to us and featured our show on one of their five curated podcast playlists, Mind Massage. So check us out on Spotify, too. And now for something completely different. I am heading out of town with my family this week, so we're bringing you a rare story from the vaults. C.S. Lewis wrote, in his preface to The Great Divorce, I must acknowledge my debt to a writer whose name I have forgotten, and whom I read several years ago in a highly colored American magazine. The unbendable and unbreakable quality of my heavenly matter was suggested to me by him, although he used the fancy for a different and more ingenious purpose. His hero traveled into the past and there, very properly, found raindrops that would pierce him like bullets and sandwiches that no strength would bite because, of course, nothing in the past can be altered. If the writer of that story ever reads these lines, I ask him to accept my grateful acknowledgement. Lewis was wrong about the story appearing in an American magazine. In fact, it appeared in a short-lived British magazine, Tales of Wonder. And it's small wonder that the author's name slipped Lewis's mind. He published two stories for this obscure magazine in 1938 and then disappeared. Today's story is the first, and the one that Lewis referred to as influencing his writing in such a unique way. This recording was originally released in 2011 in Season 5 of the Classic Tales podcast. Rest assured, we will return to the importance of being earnest next week. And now, The Man Who Lived Backwards by Charles F. Hall. The case of Nikolai Rostov was bewildering enough in its confirmed facts, without taking into account his personal narrative. With regard to the latter, 
the public immediately hailed him as a modern Baron Munchausen. News reporters as a heaven-sent opportunity for a farcical write-up, and scientists as a maundering lunatic. That is where I think the little man was done a grave injustice. For the press, seizing on his story as an incredible explanation of an even more incredible situation, wrote it up in the way it always does in such cases, as a huge joke. The public, gulping its morning coffee and bacon, shuffled blindly after the leader-writer's pipings and started a great big laugh that echoed from Peckham to Kamchatka. And that, of course, made any scientist who might have thought of starting a serious investigation shy clear of the whole affair like a frightened horse. I am not a scientist, not in the physics line at any rate, but I have had twenty years' experience as a practicing psychologist, and I will stake my life on this. Rostov believed every word of his account was true, believed that the whole amazing sequence of events had actually happened to him, no matter what other explanation may be offered. If we stop to consider his story logically and dispassionately, together with the known facts, instead of indulging in mere cacination, the disquieting thought comes to us that there is no known law which says it could not have happened. You may assert that Rostov cannot prove his story, but at least you can't disprove it. Let us start with the known facts. The beginning, or the end of the affair, whichever way you choose to regard it, has plenty of witnesses. Nikolai Rostov, dark, inoffensive, and five foot six, was physics and chemistry master at Galing Grammar School. He had no relations in England, but he had two friends, one Hans Schoten, a Dutchman, and the other Harold Matheson history master at the grammar school. These three had a common interest which brought them together at leisure time in a hut on some wasteland on the outskirts of Galing. They were all interested in modern experimental physics and had got together a rough but fairly efficient laboratory in which they were trying to duplicate and extend some of Lord Rutherford's experiments in the transmutation of elements. In connection with this, at the time, they were studying the effect of high-frequency, high-voltage electrical discharges, miniature lightning flashes of a million volts, to use Rostov's words. On Tuesday, January 20th at 3 p.m., Rostov was on the platform of his classroom in the grammar school, taking the third form. He was standing in full view, away from his desk. He did not seem in any way unusual in manner or state of mind. There was not the slightest warning that anything out of the ordinary was about to occur. Yet, as he was tapping the blackboard with his pointer, demonstrating one point, something happened to him which startled his politely blank-faced class far more than if he had stood on his head and screamed. He disappeared. No sound, no flash, nothing. Only thirty-one round-eyed, open-mouthed boys staring at an empty platform. It says much for the impression which the incident made upon them that they sat in silence for fully three minutes before one or two older boys made a tentative search and finally went for the headmaster. But the most painstaking scrutiny of a combined force of masters and prefects revealed only one thing, that the science master had vanished in a split second from the Galing Grammar School. 
The third form, meanwhile, found its voice and discussed the miracle from every conceivable angle, though the only explanation, meeting with almost general agreement, came from a golden-haired infant who darkly hinted that the devil had claimed his own. To suggest that the whole of these thirty-two witnesses were hypnotized is going a little too far. Besides, the masters were certainly not hypnotized, and as Matheson confided to me when talking over the case afterwards, Anyone who thinks he can hypnotize those young devils has never had any experience of galing grammar scholars. Rostov's Story As you know, that wasn't the last that was seen of Rostov on that amazing Tuesday afternoon. For at precisely the same instant that he disappeared from his classroom platform, or as nearly as can be ascertained, he appeared out of the air in the grounds of Mrs. van der Orvik's stately house, approximately a mile and a half away from the grammar school. A minor detail is that he had no slightest vestige of clothing on him. The only witness to his coming in this case was the head gardener, a simple-minded man by the name of Curl, although the postman, in response to Curl's shout, caught sight of him about two minutes afterwards. To see a man pop out of nothingness in the middle of an empty lawn is not exactly a sedative for the nerves. Curl had been looking across the lawn toward the house, presumably turning over in his mind some manner of begonias or seedling stalks, when flick, there was a naked man, staggering slightly, hair disheveled, eyes staring wildly, a red scar on the whiteness of his shoulder and blood on his arm. The gardener's natural alarm was increased by Rostov's first action, which was to run towards him shouting the strange words, Thank God it stopped! You're moving right! You're moving right! Curl admits frankly that he thought he had to deal with a lunatic, and reached hurriedly for a spade, at the same time calling to the postman who he had seen passing down the drive. Rostov, however, made no hostile act, but simply kept shaking the gardener's hand and babbling incoherently. On seeing him at closer quarters, Curl realized that the man was weak and exhausted. He had two days' stubble of beard on his cheeks and his eyes were bloodshot. With the arrival of the postman, Curl recovered some measure of his wits and took off his coat to drape about Rostov. Then together the two men led him to the doctor's house, which was fortunately only two doors away. As they went, Curl described the stranger's sudden appearance to the incredulous postman as best he could, and both agreed that he must be some mentally deranged person, though the manner of his appearance they could not explain. Dr. Seabom had the intelligence to see that Rostov was suffering from a severe shock and physical exhaustion, administered some restoratives, and arranged for him to have two or three days in hospital. Not until then did he listen to Curl and to Rostov's incoherent story. As luck would have it, a galing Guardian reporter, who was friendly with Seabom, was on the spot and scented a hot story. He took full notes, and the minute Rostov disappeared into the ambulance, acted swiftly. The result was that the morning papers trumpeted the whole story, although it was not until the next evening that it was connected with the Galing Grammar School affair. Those first accounts of Rostov's amazing experience were garbled in the extreme, and for the sake of clearness I will set down here not the first disjointed recital, but the story as Rostov told it to me later, soberly and earnestly. 
It began with him being in the laboratory on the outskirts of Galing at 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, January 22nd. It was here that the public drew breath and let out its first great whoop of laughter. From the Wednesday morning when the story appeared, Thursday simply hadn't been. It was tomorrow. It was the misty future. It was a dream more transient than a bursting bubble. And it smashed Rostov's reputation as a truthful man at the very start. But try to keep an open mind and listen to his story as he told it. For he swore that on Tuesday he had conducted his class without the slightest untoward incident. On Wednesday he had got up, shaved, breakfasted, gone through a normal school day, witnessed a fire at the elite cinema at night, gone to bed, and so on again through Thursday until, at that fateful moment of half-past six, he was in the laboratory which he shared with Schotzen and Matheson. The other two were also there, in the main workroom, getting ready for a discharge which was to take place at seven. Schotzen, who had no professional ties, had been there since 3 p.m., attending to the generators that were building up the charge in the great copper cone which hung four feet above the ground plate. The discharge gap acted very much in the same manner as an ordinary simple spark circuit works, with certain modifications due to size. A condenser, in which was stored the charge built up by the generators, an enormous flat-ribbed inductance, and the gap itself, formed the major part of the circuit. The breakdown voltage across the gap was the neighborhood of the million volts, and when the flash took place, the condenser would empty and recharge some thousands of times per second, in tune with the high-frequency oscillations. The Other Rostov Rostov said that on the Thursday evening he had been in the small cubbyhole adjacent to the main room, where he had some shortwave radio apparatus. He had been listening in for some twenty minutes, but got only very poor results due to very bad atmospherics, when he became aware that a freak thunderstorm was approaching outside. It was very unusual for the time of year, but there had been a spell of mild weather previously. Anyhow, he gave up the radio as a bad job, got up, and went into the next room. He had intended to hang his headphones on their hook, and he pulled the terminals from their sockets for that purpose, but instead of bothering to go to the rack at that moment, kept them on his head and slung the dangling leads over his shoulder. He was surprised to find how dark it had grown when he entered the main laboratory, and realized that the storm must be much nearer than he had thought. He crossed toward the discharge gap with the intention of taking a look at the meters, and remembers Shoten making some warning remark about not touching the negative cone, though of course he knew well enough himself not to touch any of the charged apparatus. He went to take a look at the main voltmeter, and to see it behind its mica covering in the poor light, he had to lean sideways and peer closely. The strain in the condensers and across the gap would then be roughly 850,000 volts. As he bent, the loop of flex from the headphones slipped from his shoulder and fell across the ground plate, the tips of the metal terminals resting on bare copper. Instantly he dropped a hand to switch them off, but before he could do so, there came a blinding flare of light all about him and a stunning crash of sound. He threw himself back, blinded and dazed. His first thought was that in some inconceivable manner 
the gap had shortened, and he was electrocuted. But when he could think clearly, he realized that the charge was not sufficient for a flash, and in any case, Shoten had not closed the switch which completed the circuit. After a moment of blinking and a fleeting sensation of severe nausea had passed, he was surprised and relieved to find himself still alive. Surprisingly, too, the laboratory seemed to have suffered no damage. The gap was there, windows, apparatus, all unchanged, his friends bending over a bench. No, something was wrong. His clothes, the headphones, had vanished completely. He stood agape with amazement beside the gleaming copper gap, stark naked. For some time, he told me, he could do nothing but stand there like a village idiot, with staring eyes and hanging jaw. Helplessly, he gazed around, as though the missing clothes might be dangling in midair, and as he did so, he became aware that there was someone else in the room whom he had not noticed before. This was a smallish, dark-haired man, thin-faced, clad in a sober gray suit, wearing a pair of headphones, the free flex of which was slung carelessly over his shoulder. After a minute of vague half-remembering, the realization of where he had seen that figure previously struck Rostov like a blow. He was looking at himself. After a shock such as Rostov had passed through, and coming up against an impossibility like this, a normal man might be excused for becoming a little deranged mentally. Through his mind there flashed wild conjectures, of which the chief seemed to be that he was either dreaming or mad, or perhaps he was dead. I think myself that only his scientific training saved his reason. For while his brain rocked with bewilderment, it still mechanically observed and noted. An underlying curiosity drove him on, though his conscious mind was still too dazed with shock to function properly. The figure in grey, when he first noticed it, was walking backwards. It jerked back like a film run in reverse, towards the door passing through it, and Rostov followed like a dreamwalker. His other self turned sharply to the right into the narrow cupboard of a radio room, walked, still backwards, to the chair and sat down in it. Then he pushed the phone leads into their sockets and appeared to be listening. Rostov approached the figure slowly and touched it gingerly on the shoulder, and then took hold of it more firmly and shook it, or tried to. For in spite of his strongest efforts, he could not make the slightest impression on the sitting figure. It was like touching an image of granite, save that this one undoubtedly lived. Even the cloth of the coat had no resiliency and was hard and unyielding to touch as adamant. He tugged vainly, he spoke, shouted in the man's ear. No response. Rostov studied the face of the man in the chair. It was without a doubt his own face, just as if he were looking into a mirror. With that thought came a wild fear that in some incredible manner he had been transported into some stranger's body in an exchange of personalities. In sudden, unreasoning terror. He ran to the small mirror that hung on the wall, dreading to see an unknown face reflected there. What he saw came with a terrific shock of utter unexpectedness. There was no reflection at all. The Problem He could see the opposite wall, 
part of the room, everything in the normal range of view, but no face looked out at him. It was an uncanny, shaking experience. Crane and stretch as he liked, he could see not a scrap of his own body in the mirror. He looked down. There was his body, indubitably. He held his hand before his eyes, crooked the fingers. They were all right, he could swear. He slapped his thigh, felt the sting of his palm, saw the red mark grow on his skin. In that moment, Rostov was like a small child, bewildered by events totally out of its normal experience, scared and lost. Everything in the world seemed to have gone suddenly and horribly wrong, and he wanted badly to find something right and normal, which he could use as an anchor for his tottering reason. He wanted to talk with his friends, to see human beings acting sanely again. He ran back into the main laboratory. Shoten and Matheson were at one of the workbenches. He went up to Shoten and spoke to him, tugged at his sleeve, and a thrill of horror shot through him as he realized that the same dreadful granite-like hardness had taken possession of his friend. He could make no more impression on Shoten than on a moving statue. He turned quickly to Matheson, and the history master was in the same condition. Rostov frantically punched him in the ribs and yelped with pain, for his knuckles were barked and skinned as though he had struck a brick wall. A sickening sense of impotency, of being nothing more substantial than a ghost, swept over him. As he watched his friends, another thing struck him. All their movements were in reverse. Matheson was filing up an angle, and he drew his file back across the metal at each stroke, while the forward stroke was made through the air. Queerest of all, Shoten was cutting through a metal strip with a hacksaw, and here again, his strokes seemed all wrong. But the amazing thing was that the cut, instead of growing deeper into the metal, was growing smaller and shrinking towards the top. He watched in fascination, until at last the saw blade reached the top and was withdrawn, leaving virgin, untouched metal behind. Suddenly Shoten stepped backwards and cannoned into Rostov, but he did not falter or deviate in his stride the least fraction of an inch. It was Rostov who, feeling as if he had been struck by a steam engine, went staggering aside to sprawl on the floor. He got up and watched his friend stalk solemnly backward to the tool rack and hang the hacksaw up. Telling me afterwards, Rostov said, I think I went a little crazy then. I stood in the middle of the floor and screamed, shouted at the top of my voice at them. I cursed and raved, pleaded and prayed, waved my arms to heaven. I begged them to quit fooling and be sane, though goodness only knows what joke I could have thought they were playing. I believe that for a bit I blubbered like a kid. As I have said before, the inborn scientist in him probably saved his reason. After a while, when he had quieted down, his mind fastened on the problem before him. The problem, that was it. If he could only keep calm and watch and think, perhaps some explanation would offer itself. At least he was still alive, though he was not perfectly sure about that, and he could still reason and use his wits, apparently. At this juncture, Matheson left the bench and walked from the room, again backwards. 
Rostov followed him into the little kitchen where they had a fire and a wash bowl and prepared an occasional late meal. Matheson made toward the towel, which hung on a roller beside the bowl, turned round, and appeared to be going through the motions of drying his hands. As the other watched, a gurgling sound from the basin attracted his attention. A flood of soapy, dirty-looking water was welling up from the drain outlet and rapidly filling the basin. Rostov, absorbed by this phenomenon, had barely time to skip aside as Matheson moved to the basin, inserted the plug, took the soap from the dish, and proceeded to wash his hands. When he had finished, Rostov's eyes again widened in surprise, for the water was perfectly clean and clear, while Matheson's hands were grimy, but appeared quite dry. And as he made an adjustment to the tap, the water suddenly began to flow upwards in a narrow pillar through the tap. Rostov let Matheson go back to the lab unattended, while he watched this amazing phenomenon of water spurting up through the tap. A miniature water spout, with a few queer splashed about its base, quivered up, straight and true through the orifice. The level of the basin rapidly dropped, and only an inch or so remained in the bottom when Matheson returned. As the last few drops shot up into the tap, he twisted the handle, and there was left only an empty, perfectly dry basin. Matheson made backwards for the lab door, and Rostov was following when he happened to glance casually at the clock. He noted the time mechanically and was continuing after the other, when a sudden thought froze him in his tracks. He looked again at the clock. There was no mistake. The hands showed seventeen minutes past six. Yet when he had come out of the radio room and glanced up at the clock in passing, it had been half past six. Backwards in time. He stood as if petrified, gazing at the clock. It was in that moment that the first flicker of the nerve-shaking idea licked through his mind. It was a possible but crazy explanation of the whole ridiculous affair. He slumped into a chair and tried to think coherently. Was it possible that when a puzzling flare of light had come, his time sense had in some way been reversed, turned back to front, as it were? Or to put it another way, had he been plunged into a time stream which flowed in exactly the opposite direction to the normal one? You understand, of course, that at that time Rostov had not the vaguest notion of what had happened as he stood by the gap, save a suspicion that some form of electrical discharge had taken place. But the more he thought, the more it seemed possible that only some such incredible reversal of time could explain the phenomena which so puzzled him. If he were steadily progressing backwards in time, then the surprising topsy-turviness of external actions became more understandable. His friends walking backwards, for instance, the water that flowed upwards, his ability to see himself. He was simply witnessing the past, like seeing a film run in reverse. But more than witnessing, he was living through the past, every second taking him deeper and deeper into it. He looked at the clock again. He was already separated from the world of normal time by three quarters of an hour. He began to sweat as the horror of the situation took hold of him. Three quarters of an hour is not long in everyday life, but to him it was as good as eternity. It seemed he was doomed 
never again to converse with his friends or any human being, never again to see a sane, understandable world. Try to picture him as he sat there, naked, defenseless, fighting to keep calm and grapple intelligently with a situation that should have sent him mad. Imagine his incredible loneliness, one small human plunging towards a vague and misty future which lay in the past, while with each second, everything that stood for friendship, safety, and comfort was hurtling farther away in the opposite direction. Grimly, he dragged his mind from the image and concentrated it on the scientific side of the problem. For a while he could not understand the impenetrable hardness of external objects which he had experienced. It seemed they ought rather to be of intangible transiency, much as a dream, since he was reviewing the past. But a moment's thought gave him the logical answer. The past is definite, shaped, unalterable, as nothing else in creation is. Therefore, to argue that he could make the slightest impression on it, that he could move or alter an object here, was to argue that he could change the whole history of the world or cosmos. Everything he saw about him had happened and could not be changed in any way. On the other hand, he was fluid, movable, alterable, since his future still lay before him. Even if it had been reversed, he was the intruder, the anomaly. In any clash between himself and the past, then the past would prove irresistible every time. No wonder they could not hear him shout. No wonder they could not feel a punch. He was no more than a chimera. He sat, gnawing his lip and frowning at the clock for almost an hour. There would be all sorts of queer effects. He would have to keep dodging out of people's way or run the risk of being brained. If he happened to get into the path of a fly or a bee going at speed, it would bore through him more surely than any bullet. The sun, for him, would sink in the east and rise in the west. He would see trees and plants growing downward until they shrank into the ground and turned to seed. The seed would leap through the air or be carried by birds to the parent tree, would change to flowers, to buds, back through all the endless cycle. At last he roused himself and made his way to the outer door. Fortunately for him it was ajar, and he managed to squeeze through. He had no desire to be shut in when Shouten left at three o'clock. The district where the laboratory was situated was not a busy one, and before long he realized that it would be best for him to avoid all busy thoroughfares. Never until now had he realized how much the world depended on forward movement, how rare in normal life is retrogression. It was a startling experience to see motor cars suddenly whiz round corners, traveling backwards, to see pigeons take off from the ground stern first in a flurry of wings, to see a black feather which had fallen from a crow's wing in the past float up into the air and neatly fix itself into the bird's sable plumage as it flew solemnly backwards. He found it almost impossible to prejudge people's movements. All his instinctive mental calculations were upset. A man looking into a shop window would without warning slip into reverse and come striding at Rostov, who would leap wildly aside. A ball lying in the roadway would suddenly start into life, come rolling and bouncing along, then fly past his head into the hand of the urchin who had once thrown it. After a time he learned to keep a wary eye on any movable object nearby, but the process of learning was a painful business and involved many bruises and shakings. 
doomed. All through Thursday, as the afternoon drew on to morning and the sun rose to the south and began to arch downward into the east, Rostov wandered at random, his plight almost forgotten in the unparalleled novelty of his surroundings, which appealed to the scientist in him. There seemed no reason to hope that the condition in which he found himself would ever revert to normal, though the prospect of spending the rest of his life as a helpless ghost among the scenes of an iron-bound past was not pleasant. By the middle of the morning, the thought of a prolonged existence in this state ceased to bother him. He realized what he should have done before, that unless a miracle happened, in a few days he would be dead of starvation and thirst. Not until the pangs of hunger drove him to try to sample some sandwiches from a coffee stall was the realization brought home to him. Tug and strain as he might, he could not lift the smallest crumb. He tried bending his head to bite a piece from a sandwich, but it was like trying to bite a concrete slab. He tried to lift a cup of coffee, but it was immobile as a rock. In a sudden panic, he dipped his fingers into the cup, trying to scoop up a little of the liquid. He could not even ripple the surface. It was like scratching at a block of brown glass. He stood there in dismay. It was only to be expected, of course. In any case, even if he had been able to contrive any crumb of food down his throat, he could not have digested it. If he had moved away, it would simply rip a hole in him, since it would inevitably stay fixed in its own position. Strangely enough, the knowledge that he was a doomed man did not utterly unnerve him. In spite of the jokes that were leveled at him, I think there was the stuff of a truly great character in that insignificant little schoolteacher. His odyssey was a more bizarre one than any Ulysses ever dreamed of. Yet the hunger for knowledge, the intellectual interest of a pioneer in a mighty experiment, transcended for him the fear of a slow and lonely death. He even smiled wryly as a workman stepped backwards up to the stall, turned, picked up an empty cup, lifted it to his lips, and after a moment set down a streaming full cup of coffee. The man made munching motions with his jaws, and presently took from his mouth a morsel of sandwich. More followed, until in a few minutes, a complete and untouched ham sandwich lay on the plate before him. Then he took a coin from the proprietor of the stall and put it away in his pocket as he backed briskly away. Rostov lingered for a second or two longer, fascinated by the sight of steam appearing out of thin air and gushing into the spout of the big coffee urn. Then he, too, went on his way. When at length the dusk of early morning fell, he began to think of finding somewhere to sleep, but there was to be little sleep for him that night. There was no chance he soon discovered of finding anything soft on which to lie. A heap of hay in a stable yard tempted him, but it was like lying on sharp, hair-thin wire without the slightest yield to it. For the greater part of the Wednesday night, he wandered disconsolately through the empty streets until fatigue forced him to sit on a doorstep and rest his back against the door. If it was hard, it was at least smooth. He dared not let himself sleep, for fear he should be sleeping when anyone came in or out of the door, but towards Wednesday evening, he dropped into a troubled slumber for an hour. With the chiming of ten o'clock from the church tower, he awoke and rose wearily to move on. The Wednesday night crowds were still about, and he felt it would not be safe to sleep longer. 
He rubbed a hand over his stubbled chin as he went. You will note that the mere metabolism of his body still continued normally. His hair still grew. His body became fatigued and needed food. Blood circulated steadily in his veins. His heart thumped in regulation time, which explains why he was able to remember the whole train of events from Tuesday to Thursday and back again to Tuesday. As far as his physical self was concerned, it was one unbroken period of time. Throughout the Wednesday, he worked more and more out towards the countryside, avoiding the busier thoroughfares. He was feeling faint with hunger and exhaustion, and his reflexes were slower in responding to danger signals, as was proved by one or two narrow escapes. Once he came upon a cat, walking gravely backwards towards a low wall, and unthinkingly tried to cut in between cat and wall. As he drew level, however, the cat crouched and suddenly sprang tail first through the air towards the top of the wall. Rostov was not quite quick enough in dodging, and she caught him a glancing blow on the shoulder that sent him spinning a dozen yards and left a raw gash that dripped blood along his arm. After that, he roused himself to walk more warily, but despite his care, he was almost caught in the morning. Waiting for Death The Wednesday morning was dull, with low gray clouds overhead. About eleven o'clock he noticed a curious dampness which spread in patches over the roads. As time passed, this dampness ran together and increased, until by nine o'clock something like a thin sheet of ice or glass covered the paths, and brown water was gushing up from the drains and culverts. Rostov was surprisingly slow to grasp the meaning of this, until he saw something like a streak of silver shoot up from the road, and another odd one here and there. Then the explanation and the thrill of imminent danger shot through his mind, and he leaped for a providential nearby passageway. Inside five minutes he was gazing out at the strangest rain shower he had ever seen a shower in which the drops, like deadly silver bullets, shot up at lightning speed from the ground and vanished into the sky. Pools in the road split up into a myriad tiny streams that spread away in all directions and finally dissipated themselves in drops which hurled themselves at the clouds above. Had he been caught out in that queer rainstorm, his body would have been slashed to ribbons in a matter of seconds. After about twenty minutes the shower abated, and presently he could see dry patches between the spots. Then the dry patches joined up and became bigger, while the spots of rain became fewer. Until at length the last one had flashed upward out of sight, and a bone-dry road was left behind. Rostov was hampered a good deal in the outlying roads and lanes by grass borders which kept him to the roadway. Where the grass was clipped close, it was possible to walk on it, even though it felt like treading on close-packed nails. But where it grew long, it would have lacerated his feet like thin slivers of glass. As Tuesday night drew on, therefore, he was undecided whether to return to the town to find an unfrequented corner to sleep in, or whether to push on farther in the hope of finding a farm. But, seeing a large house standing among the trees in its own grounds, he decided to try there, for he was feeling wretchedly weary. He turned up the winding drive and hunted about for a smooth spot in which to lie down. Passing an open window, a weird cacophony of noise startled him. 
and he could not think what it was until, looking through the window, he saw a gramophone on the table. It was the first time he had heard a tune played backwards, and try as he might, he could not place the melody. Sounds, of course, were still audible to him, but like all other things, they were heard in reverse, and were often totally unrecognizable. Speech came from the lips of people about him as mere gibberish, while the song of birds was changed to disjointed notes. Even the hooting of cars was different. Only sounds without changes of note, such as an engine whistle or the clatter of horses' hooves, seemed familiar. He spent the night lying on the top of a flat porch over the main entrance of the house, though sleep did not come until the Tuesday evening. He ached in every bone, and the rooftop seemed terribly hard, though fortunately he was not cold. Throughout his experiences, he felt no change of temperature. He awoke when the sun was already climbing back into the sky, and lay for a long time, reluctant to move. For the first time, utter hopelessness swept over him in a dark flood. He had not eaten for two days and nights. His shoulder was stiff and throbbed unceasingly. He had had nothing with which to staunch the flow of blood from the gash, and the loss of blood coupled with hunger and fatigue made him feel sickly and faint. There seemed no point in rousing himself to continue his wanderings, for sooner or later death would come and bring surcease from the dull gnawing of pain. He wondered vaguely if, in death, his body would revert to a normal state, whether it would still be borne on into the vast mausoleum of the past. In the late afternoon, he clambered, stiffly and slowly, down from the porch, and for a time wandered around the house. At the back, the kitchen door was open, and the sight of a plate of newly baked cakes on the table drove him to try to abstract one. It was useless, of course, and after skinning his knuckles in an endeavor to make an impression on them, he went outside again to avoid the sight of them. He made his way round to the front of the house with the intention of taking to the road again, and was skirting the main lawn when something attracted his attention. A small brown bird was flying backwards across the lawn, about five feet from the ground, but it was not this which seemed so strange. It was the fact that the bird was flying far more slowly than any natural bird ever does. Previously, all movements about him, although in reverse, had been invariably at normal speeds. But this bird was like something in a slow-motion film. It was simply drifting backwards, and he could count each wing beat. He watched it with interest. For when it was almost in the center of the lawn, his eyes widened in surprise, for it had stopped in mid-air. In a moment, he was across to it. There, five feet above the ground, the small brown bird hung as if suspended by invisible wires, frozen into an exquisitely carved, tiny statue. He passed his hand all around it, below and above, and finally took hold of it. It was brittle hard and utterly immovable exactly as all other objects were in this alien time stream. Back to Normal He suddenly realized, with a faint thrill of fear, that the whole world seemed to have become noticeably silent. A vast quiet was all about him. Not the faintest twitter of a bird, not a rustle of a branch, not a click or tap sounded anywhere. 
he stood stock still as if afraid to stir, lest some other nightmare was about to beset him. As he slowly turned his head, he discovered that all motion, too, seemed to have ceased. A gardener who had been bent over a border was grotesquely crouched, one hand half-stretched out. The slight dip and sway of the branches in the breeze had stopped. A film of smoke from a chimney balanced in the air like a spray of blue glass. The whole earth seemed to be holding its breath. Then, in a second of unutterable tension, tugged at his body, and a shock of reeling nausea struck him. His body seemed to be riven into a million pieces, yet he could not stir or cry. There was a brief flash of all-enveloping darkness, then the tension snapped like a released rubber band, and he was staggering slightly, wild-eyed. The small brown bird was flashing off towards the bushes, flying forwards. The gardener stood gazing at him with a ludicrous look of amazement on his face. Rostov realized, with a sudden wild thrill of hope, that the man could see him. He ran forward, babbling incoherently. The next instant he was shaking the hand of the astonished Mr. Curl, laughing and weeping at the same time. Well, there you have Rostov's own story, and the main facts of the case. But there are one or two more facts which you can call evidence or coincidence, whichever way your inclinations lean. Rostov said that, on the Wednesday night, he had been attracted by the crowd to the elite cinema at Highgate. He was on the outskirts of the crowd and did not have a very good view. But he at least saw the firemen break in by the second-floor balcony and the clouds of dense black smoke which rolled away on the night breeze. His story appeared in the Wednesday morning papers, and that same evening at six o'clock, the elite caught fire, and the fire brigade was called out. Rostov, of course, wasn't there. He was in hospital, sleeping peacefully. But is it a coincidence that he should have guessed, or dreamed, that a fire would occur on that identical night? Again, what can you make of this? Schotzen and Matheson went to visit Rostov in the hospital, naturally. They were carrying on with the experimental routine at the laboratory and letting him know how the work was progressing. On Thursday evening, they were both working in the main room when a freak thunderstorm came up from the south, unusual for that time of year, but not unprecedented. There were one or two desultory flashes of lightning. Then at 6.31 p.m. precisely, a vivid flash struck the roof and passed by the giant copper discharge gap to earth. The gap had been partly charged and was due for breakdown at seven o'clock. The upper cone was badly melted, the ground plate buckled and fused, and much of the adjacent apparatus was fused or burnt. Unaccountably, immediately after the flash, they found a complete suit of grey cloth, underwear, boots and socks, badly singed and burnt, beside the gap together with a twisted object which at first was unrecognizable. Later, however, they judged it to be the remains of a pair of headphones, though how either they or the suit got there was more than the two men could say. In my own mind, I feel convinced that Rostov actually went on from Tuesday to Thursday in the first place, conducting his classes and behaving in every way as a normal person should. Then, on that Thursday evening, he was twisted into a reversed time stream and started to come back on his own tracks, as it were. Thus, he would see himself in his former existence 
a helpless spectator of his own past. But when the process slowed down and stopped, and he was released into the normal time stream on Tuesday at 3 p.m., an apparent anomaly appears at once. There would be two Rostovs existing at the same time. Would have been, that is, except for the inflexible law that states that a man cannot exist in two separate places during the same period of time. But the instant that he came back into the normal time stream and appeared on Mrs. van der Orvik's lawn, his former Tuesday to Thursday existence was automatically cancelled, obliterated, washed out as if it had never been, which explains his startling disappearance from the grammar school. He had to start the Tuesday to Thursday time journey anew, but this time in a hospital ward. Yet since his metabolism and physical processes were unchanged through the adventure, he could still remember his former existence, even if it no longer existed in the minds of other people. Of the mechanism of his transition I can say a little, since, as I remarked before, I am no physicist. It seems possible that the lightning flash struck him, or the main force was diverted through the headphones, with the result that Rostov was twisted out of the normal time stream. Whether the presence of the discharge gap had any effect or not, it is hard to say. Certainly the freakish effects of lightning have long proved difficult to explain. It is a curious case, but I am inclined to think it is not unique. In the past, there have been many unexplained disappearances. There are also several authenticated instances of naked men who have suddenly appeared, apparently from nowhere, and been unable to give a coherent account of where they came from or who they were. Anyway, you have heard Rostov's story and may form your own opinion as to the most probable explanation of the whole strange affair. Though you may be inclined to ask, what does Rostov himself think about it all? I can only tell you this. Nikolai Rostov has changed his name to Norman Robinson, has grown a mustache, and wears horn-rimmed spectacles. He has gone to work in a certain industrial town whose name I have promised not to reveal, and where he is not known. Rostov is trying to forget. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Man Who Lived Backwards by Charles F. Hall. If you have enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us starting at only $5 a month. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. You can also rate and review us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Every little bit helps. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. <laughs>